everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big week of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Tonight on KFR, it is sure to be a wild and woolly affair, as we have a very special guest joining us who is near and dear to my heart, Brian. Scott, I know how much this interview means to you, so without any further ado, I don't think anyone wants to hear me talk. I'll let you make this big introduction right here. <laughs> All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show one of the nation's top meteorologists who, for four decades now, has been a Memphis institution, both as the weatherman on the number one newscast in the Mid-South on WMC-TV5 and as the iconic sidekick to the late, great Lance Russell as part of the best wrestling announce team of all time, Dave Brown. I'm so happy you could join us here tonight on KFR, Dave. Thank you very much, Scott. It's good to be talking with you. And uh, I've been uh, uh, wrestling has been the top of mind last night and again tonight uh, with the special events going on here. Okay. Uh, well, and and gosh, I guess uh, a big topic uh, in, in some parts of the country uh, is the weather. I mean, what's going on with the bomb cyclone, Dave? Oh, this is a big storm. It's, uh, you know, TV consultants, they come up with all of this stuff. And uh, it's it's a weather phenomenon. It's it's not rare. It happens every few years. It used to be called just plain old nor'easter. Uh, but now it's uh, bombogenesis and cyclogenesis. <laughs> what it is, it's, it's an interaction of very cold air with the warm waters of the Gulf Stream, uh, the uh, western Atlantic. And it can sometimes lead to very rapid intensification of a storm. It's uh, it's as powerful uh, usually as a hurricane is in a warm weather month. Uh, it's just usually moving along the coast, dropping snow and heavy winds and some flooding, but not not really uh, tearing things up because the main winds remain offshore. It's a big, powerful storm, and it's very inconvenient to everyone along the East Coast and anyone trying to get there. I have friends that were trying to get to Pennsylvania today, and their flights are all canceled. So uh, it's it's just a big big winter big winter storm along the East Coast. Uh, and, and when this happens, uh, do, uh, you mentioned your friends in, in, in uh, I believe, in Pennsylvania. Uh, what uh, do, do people call you? Do they still ask you your, your advice on the weather? No, no, no they don't. Uh, okay. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they do. But in this particular case, no, I'll tell you who it is. Jerry Lawler. Everybody's going to know. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he was uh, scheduled to make a public appearance in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania tonight. And uh, the the flights were canceled. He couldn't go. It's uh -oh. great for us because we've got him for the wrestling event here in Memphis tonight. What's happened uh, every year? The Memphis Grizzlies have uh, wrestling night. They started this I don't know three years ago, maybe something like that. Uh, a couple of the guys in the marketing and PR departments are huge wrestling fans, so they said, "Let's have a wrestling night. We'll get Jerry Lawler." So they had Jerry, they had me, they had Lance, and uh, uh, they they con. WWE and they were having an event a few days later and they said send us somebody we don't care who they said hey, we'll send Ric Flair really <laughs> Ric Flair so anyway this thing was huge it was so big that now they have it every year and uh, last night uh, we we uh, started at uh, the developmental league team the uh, Memphis Hustle down in DeSoto County and uh, we had the event down there last night and it leads right in to the big main event for the Grizzweight Championship belt tonight at FedEx Four. Wow, and, and those are collector's items. Those are very hard to get. Yeah, they are. They they gave away uh, replica belts one year, and I mean they ran out in like ten minutes. Right, uh, yeah. they were like gone. And uh, uh, tonight it's a crown. 
uh, oh. celebrating the king of Memphis. Yeah, five the first five thousand people get a crown. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be a number of them on eBay going for like a hundred bucks by tomorrow. Probably so. And we're just glad we're not playing the Sacramento Kings tonight. Which ah. like the Wizards. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would make it even better. That would make it more of a grudge match. Uh, they, they oh, that could be true. Yeah, they'd have to construct a steel cage surrounding courtside and then uh, maybe book it with like seconds remaining on the clock. Tommy Rich burst through the wood flooring to cost Memphis the win and set up the grudge rematch. Dave, uh, in your wildest dreams, did you ever imagine that Memphis wrestling would not only continue to be such an important part of the town's culture, but but also now a worldwide phenomenon? Far beyond uh, any expectations I would have had. I started in January 1967, uh, sitting in the chair just to the left of Lance Russell, uh, and uh, it was my first television job. Uh, Lance, of course, I had known. I worked at the radio station in the same building. And uh, Lance uh, told me, he said, he said, come along at your own speed. He said, don't feel like you have to force anything. Say something when you feel like it, but don't think you have to be 50-50 on the conversation. So, you know, it grew from that. So I was just a kid just with a television job on a local wrestling show. And next thing you know, that thing is building. And by the time we moved over to WMC in 1977, uh, it was really building, and by the early 80s, 60% of every television set in the area, and we had about a 50-county area around Memphis, uh, and 60% of the television sets that were turned on were watching rolling. There were Saturdays that as many as 80% of the televisions wow. were watching us. Keep in mind, there were only four television stations in town at the time, and one of them was a PBS station. Sure. So, uh, we. We, we had an audience, and uh, Lance was the program manager at the station at WHBQ. And uh, he was looking at it one day, and he said, it's all kid cartoons. Why don't we put the wrestling show in there and just see if we can get the non-cartoon audience? Well, it was a genius move, one of many that Lance made as a television programmer. And now, it, it, you know, even in, when it, even in its heyday, it was huge in this area. But then we got into the deal where everybody had a VHS at their house mm-hmm. and they would start recording the show and the tape swap. That's yeah. what got it going around the country. And then YouTube has come along in the last few years and that stuff has, has been posted up there. So we're now international, all yeah. from that little old local television show. So no, I had no clue it would ever be uh, as, as dominant as it is. Yeah, and that's what happened to me. I, I actually I was a tape trader. I answered an ad uh, in the early '80s. Uh, a guy wanted to, wanted wanted the Memphis wrestling shows, and he sent me tapes from Japan, Florida, uh, really from from every single territory. Uh, and it was just amazing. He even traveled to Memphis, and we went to a show there. Uh, so Memphis really did have this cult following uh, across the country because, quite frankly, it was the the most entertaining wrestling show in the country. Uh, I think so. I think the uh, the combination of Jerry Lawler, his uh, sense of humor, and his his adventure, uh, and uh, the genius uh, of uh, Jerry Jarrett, and his he he was meticulous in in booking the show, and he ran it through his mind like a soap opera script uh, every week. And you put all of the combination together, and I think, Lance, maybe I had a little contribution there with that, but uh, everybody contributing, and we had, we had great wrestlers that came through here, too. Uh, at, at one point, uh, all the WWE, or I think at the time called WWF, uh, all of their big wrestlers, but maybe one or two, 
had started or had at least come through the Memphis Territory at one time. That's that's how important uh, the Memphis Territory was. Yeah, absolutely. I, re- I remember a young uh, Terry Bollet who was working as yep. Terry Bowler, the Hulk, and and Jerry Jarrett's yep. the one who gave him the name the Hulk. Uh, unfortunately, he also brought his brother along. Ed Leslie, who yep. was uh, Brutus Beefcake, who was not, he didn't have the same charisma as uh, as Terry did. But I remember. Uh, well, he didn't have the same size. <laughs> no, no. He, yeah, he was always like the little puppy dog kind of following around, even though he yeah. was built. But compared to Terry, everybody was small. But I remember uh, Terry, would, you know, I had that early charisma, and Lance would, would have to carry him through his, through his interview, but you could tell something was there. And uh, he was always talking about his super southern squeeze bear hug, uh, which Jerry Jarrett explained. He goes, I gave him I gave him two moves that I wanted him to do because it's impossible to screw him up. The leg drop and the bear hug. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's, uh, it, it, it was an interesting day. And that, that's, uh, that story could be repeated several times. We had, had another kid that came in here whose, whose father and grandfather were professional wrestlers. And uh, he had been a football player uh, in, uh, in Florida and uh, a collegiate football player. And uh, he came in under the name Flex Cavana. Ah, yes, I, re- I, re- I remember that well. Probably, he, he may be the highest paid uh, movie star uh, in the world now. I'm not sure about that. But, of course, talking about The Rock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he wasn't actually, here long. Yeah, well. He wasn't here I, long. He, he was there. He in knew the- he wasn't going to be because yeah. he was good. Yeah, right from the start. I mean, you know, obviously the son of yep. Rocky Johnson, who had a great run in Memphis in the 70s. Uh, you know, I, initially, and I got to talk about the genius of Jerry Jarrett. Uh, he brought Rocky Johnson in initially as a boxer to take advantage of all the hype surrounding the Anoki Ali bout. And, That's and man, exactly it, right. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, and it just flipped. It up. He set it up as a wrestler versus boxer. Mm-hmm. And uh, any time that had been tried, the wrestler won. And uh, so that 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 was what all that was about. You're exactly right. Yeah, and uh, I believe I believe they actually did a uh, I, I, I put a, a video together of them doing the the live weigh in with Char- Charlie B. Watson. Uh, yep. who, oh, who, who oh, played yeah, they, along with it. Yeah, they had the had the weigh in on uh, on our ten o'clock newscast one night, or I, I I don't know six o'clock, ten o'clock. I don't remember which one, but anyway, one of our prime newscasts, they had a live weigh in. And, uh, it it was phenomenal in those days. We had enough time, uh, that our, our sports department, Charlie B probably had a five minute segment. So we had enough time to do that sort of thing and still do the scores and all the other stuff that we needed. Yeah. And Charlie did it with a straight face, did not try to, you know, in in any way, you know, deadpan it or make fun of it. And he actually referred to Rocky as a former sparring partner of George Foreman, which was just fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh. it, uh, it, it was it was quite a magic moment, and of course, all of that helped build the credibility of uh, of what was coming up Monday night and the Memphis territory. You know, we had Jerry Jarrett on as our, as our first guest, and uh, he was such a gentleman, and uh, it was very gracious with his time. And uh, he actually he actually kind of. Uh, he says he, it kind of bothers him a little bit when people refer to Memphis wrestling uh, as a soap opera. He prefers the term Shakespearean play, this ongoing play uh, in, in these cast of characters. Uh, and I think that sort of was reflected in his booking. 
uh, so detail oriented and had sometimes these, these tragic characters, uh, Jerry Lawler, for instance, in the chase for the world championship, how he would come heartbreakingly close to winning it, but it would slip through his fingers. Um, and then sometimes he would get discouraged and he would betray, uh, somebody and go to the dark side. Uh, others would betray him. And, uh, it was just riveting television every single Saturday morning. Exactly. Yeah. Shakespearean play is a very good description of it. And uh, it, it continued uh, for it, it wasn't just just uh, one or two episodes. It continued. It flowed and it continued for years. And of course, it would it would morph into in other things. But there was a flow from week to week. Uh, I don't recall there was ever a point where we just cut everything off and started over. It might have happened once or twice, but I don't recall it. Usually there were there were ways to weave the story in ways that we needed to go. And uh, yeah, and that and that that's what caught me uh, caught my eye as a fan. Now the first you mentioned the the deal about cartoons and wrestling. It's very interesting that that you brought that up because uh, my dad was was a big wrestling fan, and so he would make my sister and I turn it off cartoons. We, we only had one TV in the house, and we would uh, we would we would we would throw a fit. Um, and it wasn't until, it wasn't until I saw the Mongolian Stomper, Archie Goldie. Uh, oh yeah. Him. Yeah, and I saw him throwing guys around like the Incredible Hulk, and I went, "Hey, wait a minute! What's what's this? What's this all about?" Yeah. Uh, and then by he, 70- he was scary. Yeah. Archie was scary. He, he had good size. He wore these big old boots um, and and uh, used them on his opponents. But anyway, he had his head shaved when when that was not all that common. And uh, he 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 came in. He big and he. He would stomp around, literally, as as he was doing an interview. He would be walking and pacing and stomping, and uh, it was kind of (laughs) scary. Yeah, yeah, those, those boots were made for stomping. <laughs> yep, most certainly. That's and right. I and he would, and of course, he had the great Bearcat Wright doing his promos. Oh yeah, and and Stomper would just stand there, and it was almost like I, I, it, he had these menacing, beady black eyes, mm-hmm. almost like a shark's eyes that could almost see right through your soul. <laughs> you were, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And and you you and I think talked about this once before. Uh, it. They had it uh, for some reason. Uh, they had Archie do his own interview. Had the do his own interview one Saturday morning, and uh, when he did the promo, it killed him. It, it, yep. it, it was it that that uh, it killed the illusion or whatever. Yeah, the the aura of the Mongolian stomper was yep. was 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 shattered for a while. Uh, yeah, he was drawing. Gosh, he had a, such a hot summer in 1975. And this is the Lawler was in exile. He had had a falling out with Jerry Jarrett, uh, but then. Came back dressed all in white, like the White Knight, returning to his hometown to banish this Mongolian invader. I believe he's announced as being from Outer Mongolia. Uh, Outer Mongolia. Yes, yes. And uh, and he and Bearcat would kind of exchange this uh, supposed Mongolian gibberish (laughs) from from, from time to time. Um, And, man, they had a hot feud going. And Stomper was throwing salads even with – a guy like a magnificent Zulu who couldn't work a lick. Uh, that, that's how much heat he had. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that uh, characters alone would come in from time to time. You had the Mongolian stomper, you had Zulu. Uh, later you had Kamala. Oh and, yeah. Uh, people like that. And, and uh, they, they were able to put them over and, and one, one way I, uh, uh, Kamala is a perfect example. He had a handler who was under a beekeeper's hat and mask and all of that. And, uh, you know, to keep him in control. But the main thing he had, he had a manager. 
And I remember when, when they first brought Kamala in, it was JJ Dillon, who was the manager and he, he, oh man, he could talk. And, uh, you know, it was things like that that were used to take, uh, a character and, and put them over and draw money. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Sugar Bear Harris was a guy going absolutely nowhere, uh, could not work a lick. And, uh, you know, the story goes, he showed up backstage at the Mid-South Coliseum and they thought, hey, why don't we take advantage of this guy's weaknesses and turn them into a, a, a strength? Make it look like yep. he has, he's never even seen a wrestling ring, which is sort of what you got when Sugar Bear got in the ring. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so the fact that he, he looked at yeah, the, the fact that he looked a little lost and confused was uh, was was kind of natural, I guess, and uh, it, it suited the gimmick. And again, you're right; they built up Kamala just perfectly. Uh, Dylan was one of the hottest heels uh, in the territory before he even appeared. I think he sent in like uh, promos for two months before he even finally made his debut in Memphis. And when he did, I think they yeah. nearly, they nearly sold out. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. He was, he, he was hated long before he got to Memphis. I think if I recall, I think JJ was in the North Carolina area. And, uh, when he, when he finally made an appearance on Saturday morning TV, uh, he was instantly hated. Oh, Man, oh, man. Well, you know, we're actually kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, now, you started in 67, right? With, with, correct, uh, correct. So you got to see uh, this kid, this native Memphian, Jerry Lawler, from the beginning. Uh, what were your first impressions of him, and, and did you ever envision that he would be the superstar that he is today? Yeah, pretty early on, we could tell that uh, that he had talent. He could work. He was willing to make the sacrifices in the ring to work. Uh, but the main thing is he had a he had a mouth on him that he could he could do a promo like few people, maybe like nobody that I had ever personally been involved with in, in the wrestling business before. And uh, uh, you know, being being a heel uh, was perfect for him. And uh, it. it uh, knowing that Jackie Fargo had taken him under his wing, uh, it was pretty obvious that we had uh, had something special going on there. Yeah, and and I love the way that Jarrett would take real life situations. You know, it was getting to that point where Lawler was the rising star. Uh, uh, Jackie Fargo was getting a little older, so he decided to use that. And yep. you know, and 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 he said, you know, Jackie was willing to do it, but it kind of hurt him in a way. You know, because he had to take a look and look at himself in the mirror and realize he was getting a little older uh, and couldn't do this forever. And graciously stepped aside and and, and put this young kid and, over as the new king. And uh, Jackie Fargo had a had a very very healthy ego himself, not not a disagreeable one, but he 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 was uh, quite the consummate uh, wrestler and performer. And for him to embrace this whole thing and to help Jerry along. Uh, was very gracious. Uh, Jackie deserves a lot of credit for for that. For um, he actually, of course, made his career longer uh, by his association with Jerry as Jerry became uh, the king, the superstar. Yeah, and I love the way. Actually, that was the very first card I attended at the Mid South Coliseum. Was one of those deals where Lawler was in a situation. I believe Austin Idol had kicked him in the gut. And he had internal bleeding, and that was a shoot. You know, that really happened. I believe Jerry collapsed in an airport um, and was in the hospital. And of course that made the Memphis newspapers. Uh, so he needed, a, you know, I love the line. It was like, I don't need a wrestler. I need a fighter. <laughs> so yeah. and, and, they, and he would, he would also, he would always have to drive to Nashville 
Uh, and there was that, that, that famous couch that I think that Jackie had for 20 something years where the Lawler would have to you know, pitch the thing to him. So Jackie, will you help me? And he'd say, baby, Pally, I'm coming. Uh, and it could still just cut a promo like nobody, uh, well into his sixties. That's right, Pally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, uh, yeah it, it was, uh, it was a very special time and you're right. Uh, of course the wrestling office was, was in Nashville. Uh, in the Goulas Welch days. And of course, Jerry had, had his uh, operation centered in Nashville too. So yeah, all the guys were, uh, it's, it's kind of like airline pilots are today. They may live in, uh, I, I don't know, they may live in Little Rock, but they're based in Memphis or they're based in Atlanta. And that's the way the guys were. They were based in Nashville and everyone kind of, uh, the, the spot shows that we did during the week kind of spoke uh, out from Nashville in the center. And so the the guys spent a lot of time on the highway there. Yeah, I don't I don't think Lawler actually moved back to Memphis until uh, maybe the early eight, like maybe eighty uh, two. I, I, I don't remember what year, but yeah, he yeah. he lived in uh, on on the lake out in Hendersonville uh, there right. for a while, right? Which is uh, the, the home of uh, Tommy Wildfire Rich, who uh, yeah, you, know, right. you know, and I didn't know this that that he got his break working on Jerry Jarrett's farm. Uh, you know, and Jerry Jarrett was trying to actually tried to run him off. Uh, he would have him like do all these tours around, uh, the, you know, having digging ditches and doing all this stuff. And he would work from dawn to dusk. And he said, man, this kid really wants it. Uh, yep. and right from the get go, Jerry, Jerry right from, learned that from, uh, from, uh, buddy Fuller. Okay. Uh, buddy used to, buddy used to run a wrestling school for the kids. And, uh, part of the wrestling school was to get in shape and, and that entailed, clearing new land to farm for trees and stuff, digging out stumps, all of that sort of thing. So he got free labor while he was in fact <laughs> training the guys and getting them in better shape. So I think, I think Jerry maybe went to school on that. And Jerry Jarrett obviously had a, had a tremendous eye for talent. I think he had great instincts because right away, I mean, quickly after Rich debuted, he and Lawler are drawing like eight, 10,000 people in a feud over the Southern heavyweight title. Yeah, not only did Jerry have a great eye for talent, he had a great uh, feel for how to build that into, well, a main event uh, in short order if he needed to, rather than taking the long process. I think he understood sometimes if you take too long to build somebody to the top, uh, people get tired of them. And it's, it's more difficult. So uh, I think Jerry was able to grab that, that perfect balance and, and make it work, not only in the case of Tommy Rich, but with other folks, too. Uh, you know, shortly after Jerry Lawler turned babyface, uh, and we, you know, we have this tremendous audio, I, I believe I, I sent you a, a copy of it. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it yet. But uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, well, listening to that, uh, what, uh, what, what memories came back to you uh, about that day? Oh, gee, I don't know. There are so many of them. And, of course, Jerry uh, turned babyface so many times <laughs> yeah. that uh, he, he would kind of float back and forth. Uh, he, he was pretty much totally the heel uh, in the beginning. Uh, and and uh, then from time to time over the years, he would go, go back and forth. But never quite as hated. Always, you know, with people, people pulling for the heel. Uh, in, in his case, in many, many cases. So I don't remember, uh, you know, exactly that particular day, uh, so much. I'd have to look at that video again, but, uh, it, uh, I, I remember the time and, and again, there was, there's some question, uh, 
when you change somebody who's over as well as Jerry was already, uh, when you make the change, there's, there's a little tiny bit of doubt, at least, is it going to work? Although I will say in Jerry's case, there was, there was much less doubt there would have been with some other people. Yeah, and it seemed like to me that he didn't really change his wrestling style at all. Uh, you no. know, he yeah, he you know, he still came out there punching, kicking. You know, I, I have referred to him for the longest time as the dirtiest baby face ever in any territory. I mean, how many baby I faces are <laughs> I think that's a great description, and I think it's one reason that uh, he he kept his fans, no matter which side of the aisle he was he was wrestling on at the time. And even with Lance Russell, the the you know the, gosh, just the chemistry that those two had. Uh, you know, when he was a heel, he would just sting him with all these insults. But then when he turned babyface, Lance was almost like a almost like a father figure in a way, and and but sort of it was still uh, make you know call him banana nose, but it was a little bit more playful. Um, yeah, so yeah, exactly. It, it matter of fact, it, it was uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't done as an insult. It was done to to get a laugh. Uh, yeah, uh, for Jerry and and uh, Lance again went along with it. Of course, Lance uh, was responsible for for Jerry really being uh, being on the show to begin with. Uh, the well known story that Jerry uh, would uh, go to the uh, well Cook Convention Center at the time it was Ellis Auditorium to the matches on Monday night. And the television station, back in those days, it wasn't videotape. Most of the time it was film that the news folks shot. And we had such a, a short staff that there was not a staff to go down and, and shoot video of the Monday night wrestling. So Jerry would draw these great cartoons of some of the things that happened the previous Monday night and send them to, to Lance at the television station. Well, Lance saw them. He went, man, these are great. So one Saturday we put them on the show. And, uh, it, uh, it, it, it developed from that, uh, that, uh, Jerry then became interested in, in being a wrestler and, uh, he and Jackie Fargo got together. He got in, into the radio broadcast, uh, there for a little while and, and, uh, worked with and for, uh, uh, Jackie Fargo and yeah. Yeah. just, just kept blossoming. So, uh, all that to say that Lance and Jerry had a special relationship in that regard. Anyway, uh, Jerry had nothing but great respect for Lance and Lance had great respect for the talent that he saw in Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe, uh, I believe Jerry started after Lance introduced him on the air, uh, you know, and said, this is the guy who's been sending in these drawings. And I, and I asked Lawler about that and he said, you know, that happened shortly after my father passed away. Yep. Uh, for some yep. reason, I don't know what possessed me, but I started sending in these drawings, and I don't know if I was if I was looking for something, uh, if I was maybe perhaps looking for something to, to take my father's place, uh, but it, it was almost just like it was destined to be. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, it, it's just it's just natural, and, and Jerry has such charisma. Uh, I mean, he can walk into a room and, and he lights it up. Uh, there, there are people like that. Uh, if you think you, you know, people in your life that they just, they, they glow, they have charisma when they walk into a room with a lot of people or a few people. And, uh, Jerry certainly had that, uh, which is very important in the business. Well, and you also mentioned, uh, I believe you and I talked once about handsome Jimmy Valiant, how he would show, he was sort of, <laughs> sort of, sort of a, an anomaly because he displayed very little personality backstage. It was, you know, very polite, uh, but very soft-spoken and almost, almost shy. Yeah. Uh, but as yeah, you, you could, you could yeah. barely hear what he was saying. <laughs> you, you, 
you'd go back there and, and, uh, and Jimmy would be sitting over on the side somewhere reading poetry. Uh, he, he, he was a very cerebral guy and yet you, you put him out in, in front of the camera to do his promo and he comes dancing out, bouncing out, uh, you know, rocking and rolling and, uh, and talking about handsome Jimbo from Mempo and, and, and all of those things, just a totally different character, but wow, did it work? You know, talking about Jimmy and Lance, uh, I remember Lance one day, I, I've forgotten what the whole deal was, but anyway, uh, Jimmy had been kind of, kind of humbled in a match and there was a rematch coming up and, and Lance, he said, look, he said today, instead of coming out bouncing, he said, come out very meek, very quiet. And you know, that it's, it's like, okay, I've been thinking about I got to get serious about it and I'm coming to take care of business on Monday night. Well, he did and it worked. Of course, wow. then he went back to be a handsome band bouncing, uh, Jimmy. And, uh, it, I, I, I loved Jimmy Valiant, the character and, and due to this day, he's a good guy and he was, he was great television. Uh, yeah, and I think that Jimmy is sort of indicative of the Memphis Wrestling Show as far as being very innovative. Uh, Jimmy Ray, I think, was one of the first to shot, you know, start dropping pop culture references uh, in his interview, and just it did, it did it seamlessly. I remember the famous interview where he says that uh, when Smokey and the Bandit was really big, and that Burton Stanley just dropped me off, and uh, I don't know, man, I think Burton sl- slipped something in my Coca Cola. I, I feel good. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten about that, but you're right. Yeah, he he, uh, which was great because he relates to the crowd, things that the other things that the that that the fans are interested in, and he pulls it in and keeps it modern rather than some anachronism from uh, from the 1950s or 60s. Right, and and that led to that incredible video that uh, for Son of a Gypsy that I helped, I think uh, Jimmy Hart helped produce, and I believe Hart wrote the lyrics for the song. Uh, came rolling into Memphis, TWA. Tell all the ladies, yeah. Jimmy's on his way, and uh, yeah, that's... oh, just unbelievable! It's so it's so ahead of its time. Well, yeah, music videos were a great innovation. I'm not sure, but what we invented, I say we. I think the the, the I didn't have anything to do with that particular wing of it, but uh, I I think music videos may have very well been invented in the Memphis wrestling territory uh, because I remember Lawler did one uh, walking back from the back of his house and taking off his shoes, throwing them over his shoulder, uh, to, and, and jumped in the lake eventually. But, uh, it, it, uh, they, they put, you know, the wrestling to a popular song of the day or a custom song of the day. And in the case, something that Jimmy Hart wrote and it, uh, uh, that's what MTV did a few years right. later. Right. Right. And, and, and it really started, you started seeing this change in the demographic of the audience in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, like my sister, uh, she used to have a crush on Tommy rich. And then when he left the area, she lost all interest in it. Uh, and then, but when the fabulous ones came along in 82, uh, and then the rock and roll express, not too long after that, uh, man, you started seeing all these teenage girls in the front row on TV. Uh, you're right. And I, I will never forget when the fabs came along, they, uh, they were the fabulous ones. And, and uh, that, that Jackie Fargo was the fabulous Jackie Fargo. And he, he became, uh, for all intents and purposes of television, he was, he was their mentor. He's the one that put them together. And, uh, it, it was just genius to take these two young guys, uh, who were okay wrestlers and build them into giant superstars. Um, and, and again, the music videos played a, played a whole, 
lot of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, it, it was so important in, in yeah. getting them over. And uh, yeah, it, it, it was a genius move, very innovative and, and a genius move. Uh, and not only that, but uh, also just with the with the with the gimmick matches that, that Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler both would dream up over the years were were just uh, so uh, ahead of their time. And and the thing about it was they but they were all built around personal issues. You know, uh, Jerry Jarrett yeah. told me that, uh, you know, he had a sign in his office, personal issues, draw money, uh, just to kind of keep him on track with, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we have to go back to. That's our bread and butter. Yeah. And, and the classic one for me was part of the Lawler Dundee uh, uh, feud, uh, which went on and on and on. And because it, it just kept drawing big money and it, they, they had a hair versus hair match. Well, Dundee, I, I don't remember the entire uh, chronology of the whole thing and how many matches it involved, but eventually Dundee loses his hair. Well, then they come back and want to rematch and all of that. Well, Dundee doesn't have any hair to put on the line. So he puts <laughs> his wife's hair on the line. Yeah. <laughs> and, poor Bev. <laughs> uh, yeah, poor Bev. And, and she had her hair cut off. And then uh, there was also a Cadillac match. Uh, going to put the Cadillac on the line. Well, it ended up with a, uh, an aluminum baseball bat through the windshield in the studio. So yes. there, there's your Cadillac. <laughs> That's what's going to be on the line. And and you're right. It it uh, it was very first. And Jerry Jarrett was exactly right and proved it time after time after time. And again, I, I, Jerry Jarrett explained that he got the idea for that. Bill Dundee pulled up into his office driving the Cadillac, and he went, "Hey, hmm, the fans are seeing Bill in this Cadillac, so they know it's his." And so let's just take something that's real and turn it into part of the angle. And it was, yep. it was amazing. I think they went, uh, gosh, uh, between, between like seven and eight weeks, uh, the same match on top, the same two individuals. And each week the stakes got higher and so did the crowds. Yep. That's right. It was, it was masterful. And you know, uh, the, the Lawler Dundee thing is just, uh, it's almost unbelievable when you step back and look at it, uh, it, the way it developed, because not only were they the most intense rivals that was ever in the territory, uh, they were also the best tag team when they were working together. Uh, and it's just, you know, the, the flipping back and forth like that, it, it was made to work by great storytelling, by that Shakespearean play that Jerry was talking about. Uh, stepping back and looking at it, it, it's, it amazes me to this day. And you couldn't ask for two more different guys outside the ring, but True. on the, yeah, but on the air, especially as partners, you thought that you thought they were best friends, yeah, um, exactly. which made it all the more effective when they would have a falling out. Oh yeah. A, a lot of times when they had a falling out, it was a little bit of a shoot. <laughs> yeah. That, well, <laughs> exactly. it, uh, yeah. They, they didn't have any trouble getting, uh, getting that going. No doubt about it. it, well, that's, uh, it that's, was. well, I believe that's how it all started too, because right when Jerry left, uh, his, I think his last appearance in Memphis for a while was in February of 1975 and the following week, the Australians debut. Yeah. George Barnes came in with uh, Bill Dundee. George was the one that did most of the talking when they first came in. And then uh, George, after, I don't know, a few weeks, a couple of months, I don't remember how long he was here, but not very long. Um, he wanted to go back home to yeah. uh, Australia. So he did. And Billy decided to stay here. Uh, so uh, early on, you had to lead Billy through his interviews, but uh, he became pretty good at it. He, he developed uh, 
uh, he developed the technique of coming out and taking over the interview and saying everything that he knew he needed to say and getting out. And that worked for him. Uh, that way he stayed, uh, he stayed totally on track, got the point over and, uh, and went on out and left it for what it was. Yeah, I, re- I, re- I we have some very rare audio of some of uh, the early promos from George Barnes and Dundee, and it was amazing to hear. I didn't realize that George was sort of the intellectual, and he would almost yep. come off almost come off like uh, Nick Bockwinkle in a way, and yeah. then and then he would sort of pass it off to the firecracker. Bill Dundee, who would sort of like kind of, you know, go into a, a rage and then and then, you know, you would have uh, George kind of calming him down at the end and, and saying, oh, OK, Bill, OK, OK, calm down, calm down. Uh, so yeah. it, was a, it was a really George interesting be, dynamic. George could be quite funny, too. Uh, I remember he was doing a promo for on Saturday nights after the Memphis television show. The guys would go up to Jonesboro for a spot show. And I remember him coming out, of course. You know, they were super heels here from Australia. And he he, he was talking about all the, the farmers and, uh, in, in Jonesboro and all around like that. And, uh, he, he, you know, that's fine and all of that. But then he comes out with this line. He said, look, he said, we don't mind you coming to the matches on your tractors. But for goodness sakes, take the plows off of them first. <laughs> so they get too close to the cars. And I about lost it when he said that. Lance was doing that particular interview, and I was doubled up in the corner. Yeah. How did you guys not crack up more often oh. when you had, like, Jimmy Hart out there just rattling oh. off these insults? Uh, just And Lawler, of course, was just, you know, a master. Uh, how did you keep a straight face? We just you had to put your game face on and go out there, uh, and it, it sometimes it was very difficult because they said some funny stuff, and sometimes they would say stuff that was hilarious because it was inside. Uh, right. the, the audience didn't really know what they were referring to, but we did. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was like incredibly funny. You know the 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 worst I got cracked up. Unfortunately, I wasn't on camera. I was doing commentary on the match. Uh, was at uh, WHBQ. It was a fairly small studio at WHBQ, so we were very close uh, to the ring and to the audience. And I don't know, I'm guessing maybe I was six, seven feet away from the from the ring uh, doing the commentary and brought a, a guy on the Big Bad John. Mm. And in 1976, uh, the centen- bicentennial year of the United States, he became the bicentennial baby, and he would come out wearing red, <laughs> white, blue, and all of that sort of stuff. Well, Big John was a heel, and he was right over in the corner, right next to the desk. And I was, uh, and, and he was pulling the guy's hair, and I yelled, "Hey, ref, he's pulling his hair!" And John stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, "Tattle tale." <laughs> right back to the match. Well, that just cracked me up. <laughs> uh, Things it, like that would happen from time to time, uh, and and uh, uh, you just you just try, try to keep the poker face and uh, go on. And were you amazed at the metamorphosis from Jimmy Hart when uh, you know being the manager of Lawler and kind of having a muzzle on because Lawler was such a golden interview and really Lawler was ah oh, he was in his prime I think as a heel. You know, just hitting his stride in 1979, uh, when in January 1980, he breaks his leg. And yep. suddenly, Jerry Jarrett decides to put all the heat on Jimmy Hart. Do you remember that that meeting that they had where uh, Jarrett kind of rallied the troops? And uh, Yeah, I, I do. He, he said, everybody's got to pull together on this. And, and he made the decision 
to to put the heat on Jimmy Hart and let Jimmy take over. Keep in mind that that Jimmy was uh, was was not a wrestler. Uh, he would get in the ring every now and then, but uh, he he was not he was not a wrestler who could who could wrestle at the top of the card in a, in a main event by himself. So as uh, the loud mouth mouth of the South manager, uh, he he but but you couldn't have done it without Jimmy Hart being Jimmy Hart. Uh, and, and he, he could talk a lot. Uh, he, he could come up with stuff. Uh, he could think on his feet. He knew he, he developed this instinct of, uh, how to, how to get to the, to the crowd, how to, how to get to the fans. And that, that was a scary time because Jerry Lawler was the money. Mm. Uh, he's, he was, he was the prophet. Uh, and you know, the, the whole thing, uh, could have very well gone under it. And, and I, think that Jerry, the two Jerry's probably had a heart to heart and Jerry Jarrett, I think, uh, shared with Jerry Lawler. You realize you put the whole company at stake here. Uh, they, yeah. uh Jerry broke his leg, not in the wrestling ring. He broke it playing, playing football. Yeah. Uh, he, he loved to play sandlot football and uh, played softball. And, uh, so they, they came to that understanding, but be that as it may, Jerry Lawler was out for most of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that, with that broken leg, and Jimmy Hart did in fact save the territory. Now he didn't do it alone. Uh, we also had some some other great talent that came in that were capable of of, uh, of drawing some big money uh, on a limited basis. And you wove uh, Jimmy Hart as as kind of the common thread through that, and uh, we made it. Actually, we were quite successful, even though Jerry was out. I, re- I re- even remember as a kid being stunned because Jimmy Hart rarely said anything. He would mostly hold Lawler's CWA world title as the king, you know, said what he was going to do to his opponent. And then the very first interview, uh, Lance is just assuming oh. that Hart is going to show some Ooh. sympathy. And Hart right away goes, you know, after Lance does this big, long thing about Lawler being injured, when yep. Hart turns to him and says, are you through? Are you through? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it, and he was off and running and then uttered probably the most iconic line ever in the history of Memphis wrestling. If you have a prize no race, if you have a prize racehorse, a champion, a thoroughbred, and he breaks his leg, what do you do to him? What do you do to him, Lance? You shoot him, don't you? You shoot him. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you shoot him. Yeah, that, oh, that got, that got heat, not only with everybody in the, in the audience base, it got heat with Lawler, (laughs) Uh, but you know, looking back on it, that's probably the line that sold the entire thing, um, because it was so memorable. It was so shocking. And, uh, from there that allowed Jimmy to, to say, he didn't, he didn't have to explain anything else. It's like, Hey. I got to survive, so I got to get rid of this racehorse and find me another one. And uh, it 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 worked. Um, I don't know. It it just worked. And and he took bland uh, mid Carter Paul Ellering and transformed yeah. him and named him the king. The very first episode didn't even wait a week. Uh, and of course, uh, this made handsome Jimmy Valiant, who was also a heel, managed by heart jealous. <laughs> And that set up a natural feud, and they were kind of off and running, and and didn't. I think 1980 was a very interesting year, and I think it showed a lot of Jarrett's uh, creativity, because with this biggest star on the shelf, they had a lot of they drew a lot of great houses in Memphis. Yeah, they did, and they they did it with uh, with borrowing people from other territories, particularly from uh, Florida and from from Carolina, maybe a little bit from Georgia, but but particularly from Florida. 
as I recall, uh, uh, Jerry Jarrett and Eddie Graham uh, in Florida were on on pretty good terms, and so you know they would swap talent, and we would rest talent uh, back and forth between those promotions quite a bit. And by doing that, bringing people in for uh, short terms uh, or or medium terms, we were able to draw a house. And then when they kind of got stale, for a lack of a better word, uh, we'd bring somebody else in from somewhere else. Or I say we would, Jerry would, and it, uh, it it kept the whole thing going for the entire year. Uh, and you mentioned Nick Goulas uh, earlier, and you know Nick yeah. had a way. He, he would always say that uh, you know it was the greatest card in the history of professional wrestling coming up, and we we have an audio clip of him uh, doing this and putting it over as you know it's going to break all records for the first time in history. Da 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 da, and then he pitches it back to you, and Jerry Jerry told me that uh, that he had instructed you and Lance, you know if. If you feel like it's the biggest card in history, then go along with that. Uh, but if you don't think it's the biggest thing you've ever seen, don't do it because it'll ruin your credibility. And Nick pitches it yeah. back to you, and you and you go, uh, "Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, we've already gone over the card for this Monday." But yeah, uh, well, we are, we already had. <laughs> and Nick, you know, Nick didn't understand, and uh, Nick Nick was kind of more of a carny uh, barker than anything else, I guess, in that regard. He didn't understand that you had much of the same audience every week. Uh, it wasn't like you went to a different had had the same two or three thousand people uh, or a different two or three thousand people coming through that you did previously this year. Uh, we had a, had a huge part of the same audience, and you can only say this is the greatest card in the history of Memphis right. wrestling uh, <laughs> so many times until people go, "Wait a minute, that don't mean anything." It's, it's kind of like breaking news on television newscast now. It doesn't mean a thing because it's it's all breaking news that, as far as uh, as their headlines are concerned. And it was that way with Nick. And that was great of Lance to tell me that. Keep in mind that I had another job at the time. Uh, I was a, a radio DJ across the hall. And then when I moved over to the television station, uh, credibility became even more important. Uh, Lance understood that. I understood that. And fortunately, we, we had, uh, especially when we got to Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler, they understood the importance of that. Uh, and so that's the reason Lance told me that. And uh, I, I, Nick, I, he just never understood uh, that you can't say it's the greatest card in the history of wrestling every week and, and have it be so. And as a matter of fact, Nick probably should have only uh, intro that uh, once every month or once every three months and just let us handle it. That's what Jerry Jarrett did later on. Uh, but uh, I guess Nick wanted to be on camera, so he yeah. always send that interview in. He did it in Nashville. Yeah. And then when the guys came in, they, they brought it with them. Right. Oh my gosh! And I think that's part of the reason why why you and Lance click so well because uh, Lance would be really fired up and and more and ener- very energetic, uh, greeting you at that fabulous yellow again, everybody. Uh, and then he would pitch it to you, and you were a little bit more laid back, a uh, little bit a uh, little a little bit more classy and uh, and subdued. Whereas Lance would would uh, you know if a heel was doing something, uh, you know, hurting a wrestler, hitting him with a chair, hitting him with a chain. Lance would get all fired up, and and you would kind of just shake your head, just like, ah, oh, gosh, this guy. Can't well, I, we kind of, and, and I don't, I don't know that Lance and I ever really ever had a formal discussion on this, but uh, the way I saw it was Lance was leading the parade. 
he was the parade <laughs> marshal. He was he was the, the, the drum major leading the parade. And my function as an employee of the television station, and especially as a meteorologist, uh, was that I did have to maintain credibility. So my role, I kind of saw it as the voice of sanity when all heck was breaking out all around you there. And that, uh, the voice of reason, that, tr- that was what I tried to establish uh, as my role. Um, somehow it worked. Uh, however it came out, that, that it, it worked uh, wonderfully for us. Which was not easy when you had, like, say, Adam West, Batman, dropping by. One of the most famous interviews I ever did. The most famous interview I ever did. Yeah, that was going to be, I don't remember what year that was. I'm thinking maybe about 1974 or 5, something like that. Uh, uh, I thought it was I thought it was 76, but I could, I could be wrong. All right, may it, May have been. It was a it was a WHBQ. It was before we made the move over to uh, over to WMC. But it, it, Adam West was in town for a car show. Lawler was was appearing at the car show. He met Adam West, and I, I don't know the whole thing, but somehow talked Adam at, into coming out and doing the show. We were doing it live on Saturday morning. And, uh, so Adam West came out in, in partial Batman costume. You know, it's, it's interesting. He, he gave us a great interview. It was a funny interview. That's another time I almost lost it. Uh, <laughs> when Adam West said, you know, I think there's hope for this evil King. I think if we can convince him to see things in a more positive light, if we can get him to use his left and right turn signals, well, at that point I'm gone. You know, I, I, I don't know how I kept from laughing out loud at that, but a lot of people, uh, in, in later years have, have, I've seen it posted that, uh, Adam West, perhaps inebriated. Well, he, Adam West was not drunk. He was sober as a judge. Um, and, uh, the interview was very campy and what happened. It was, it was several years, I guess, what, maybe eight years, uh, after the Batman television series, the Batman television series was, was groundbreaking. Uh, it was, it was a very campy, it was loaded with humor and that's the kind of interview that Adam West was doing. Uh, and, but it had been off the air, the show that the series had been off the air so long that I think a lot of people in the audience didn't make that connection. Right. So it came off as being a little disjointed rather than campy and funny uh, as we saw it. But anyway, I want to set that record straight. Adam West was not inebriated when he did that interview. I, very sober and a very nice guy. Yeah, I had people ask. I have people ask me that to this day, and I'm like, no, not at all. Not if you, not if, not if you know if you've ever seen Adam West at a convention, which you know, being an Uber nerd that I am, I have. Uh, and if you were a big fan of the show, you, you know that his mannerisms and the way he talks, and uh, when he would sign autographs. You and I were talking about this over lunch recently. Uh, you know, uh, if a young uh, maybe heavy set older woman was asking for his autograph. He might go, ah, nice to meet you, young lady. Clearly you don't have a date tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, he was, he was, he was just trying to be, trying to be amusing. And, uh, that's, that's all there was to it. Well, and Lawler was actually, and, by the way, okay, by, go ahead. after the show, I was back in the dressing room and I, I don't remember some of the, some of the older uh, school, wrestlers were sitting back that back there and uh, i don't know how it came up but i remember jerry saying the line he said yeah, I, know, I know some of you guys think that that interview wasn't good for the business and i remember a couple of guys nodding their head and going yeah we don't but uh jerry uh jerry was a visionary in that word jerry lawler in that respect and uh it worked yeah it's almost like you know they were the first memphis was the first one to really inject comedy 
into wrestling. Um, and really kind of, they did so much of what WWE would do later on in the 80s. Uh, you know, it, it, you know the comedy uh, and also the elaborate entrances and those kinds of things. Uh, you know, I think the, the fabulous Freebirds were, uh, you know, among the first. Uh, now, Gorgeous George certainly had used music before, uh, and then you had uh, Bad Bad Leroy Brown coming out to the to the famous song by Jim Croce. Uh, yep. but, then the, but then the Freebirds came out with all the the pomp and circumstance and the preening. And Lawler was actually standing in the ring in the Mid-South Coliseum as a babyface, waiting for these heels to come down as the Freebird anthem was playing at the Mid-South Coliseum. And all, you know, everybody was on their feet. And three weeks later, Lawler's wrestling Nick Mockwinkle. The lights are off. And Lawler comes to the ring, I think, for the first time on a throne. <laughs> so it was yeah, no, exactly. Oh, the grand entrances were, were something. You know, they lured him out of the ceiling once at, at the Coliseum. And, uh, you know, he came with a throne. I think maybe he came in riding on a horse once. And, oh, yeah. Uh, it, 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 uh, he would have these grand entrances. But, you know, you're, you're talking about that, and, and especially the, the Adam West interview and, and these other things uh, that you're talking about. These were in the days of kayfabe, strict kayfabe. Uh, everybody, you know, you, you walked in that studio and you believed everything you saw for the hour and a half that, that we were on the air. Uh, that's the way it was. And, uh, you, you didn't share that with the fans, the outside world, what happened happened. And, you know, it, it, it that, that's exactly what was going on. And especially with the old school guys, they, they, uh, they, they translated into these, uh, uh, into this, they, they were thinking it was hurting, uh, the kayfabe that, that people would not, uh, would not believe the rest of it. If you added these entertainment values to it. And, uh, so there was quite a bit of resistance to that, but history certainly proves that it was the right move to make. And, uh, I tell people then, then WWE came along and totally blew kayfabe away and, uh, they made more money than everybody put together. So it's, it, uh, it could still draw money. I don't think the same thing could have happened in 1967 and worked, but as, as the world changed and as, as the progression came along, uh, it was just the right thing to do. Yeah. And it it seemed like the comedy aspect of it really kind of broadened the audience. Um, and, and maybe increased, you know, it, it increased the, the, the variation on the, on the demographic, uh, and who was tuning yep. in and that, and that could have been the, the result of those high ratings, uh, peaking in the, in the early eighties. Yeah. Well, we, we, the, the demographic had to change. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like me now no television stations care what I watch. Uh, because I'm not in the right demographic. And we had to have the same demographic if we were going to keep getting a television audience and if we were going to keep filling up uh, the Mid-South Coliseum. You, you couldn't do it with the same old folks that have been going to wrestling since, uh, since 1965. Uh, you had to adapt and you had to get these young adults and these older teens uh, who, who had the money and could, could buy the tickets and, and support us and who advertisers wanted to reach. So the demographics had to change, and that was an important part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had so many people, uh, like all the baby boomers grew up uh, actually in the city of Memphis. But by the time, you know, they were getting into the seventies and starting their own families, they were all moving to the suburbs. So a trip to yeah. the, a bit, a trip I, I was one of them. Uh, as yeah. a matter of fact, I didn't <laughs> grow up in Memphis. I, I grew up in the, in the area though. I grew up about 80 miles from here. 
But uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, again, you, we were getting more television stations coming online. I don't remember what the year was, but uh, uh, we had a, a Channel 24 came online at the time. It was a Fox affiliate. Uh, they all they did basically was uh, run syndicated programs and old movies. But uh, anyway, the, the the television universe was beginning to change, and when we got on into the eighties, especially into the late eighties, uh, cable made a penetration into the entire metro area, and uh, so that that greatly increased the universe uh, of television stations. So things were changing rapidly for the television business, which had a direct effect on the wrestling business because uh, the local wrestling business, the local territory could not survive without the television show. The promotion certainly did a brilliant job of changing with the times. Uh, and along with Jerry Jarrett's ingenious episodic booking, uh, the, the chemistry between you and Lance, uh, and the fact that Jerry Lawler was not going to be wooed by Vince McMahon since he was part owner of the promotion. And I mean, I think that all enabled them to, to stay in business while other territories were imploding. I mean, it's, Vince McMahon did such a masterful job of cherry picking each territory's regional stars and even had the gall to ask other promotions uh, across the country to send him tapes of their top talent so he could feature them on All American Wrestling on the USA Network before he broke that tacit agreement that you didn't cross territorial lines to promote. And, um, you know, Vince had trouble drawing in Memphis, uh, not only because Lawler remained in the area, but also because some of the tactics uh, Jarrett and Lawler used to, to fight back, such as offering $2 shows at nearby Timber Carver Stadium on the nights uh, WWF had shows at the Coliseum. This actually caused Vince to cancel uh, several cards before he eventually penetrated the market. But, you know, it almost seemed as soon as guys like the Nasty Boys or the Rockers would get hot in Memphis, uh, Vince was just ruthless and that he would sign them away uh, that, that, that much quicker. Yeah, he was because we were so strong otherwise here. And it, it was a war between WWE and Memphis. Uh, Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler uh, felt like that Vince was out to destroy territorial wrestling. And that's kind of what eventually happened, although I don't. I don't, I don't know. I've never talked to Vince, but uh, I, I don't really think that was his, his idea. I think his plan was just to cherry pick all the great talent from all the territories all around and have his uh, events so big that the local wrestling could not compete with him on a regular basis, but he wasn't going to come in here and wrestle every week anyway. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what all the thought process was going back, but I know for a fact that the Memphis territory, uh, there was absolutely no love lost between Vince McMahon and uh, the WWE and the Memphis territory. Yeah, it, it was still amazing. It was amazing to me in 93 to see Jerry Lawler suddenly appear on uh, WWF television. Uh, it was yeah. <laughs> it was like this. This can't be happening. Uh, you know, as, as, as hell frozen over. Uh, but uh, but it only made sense because Vince had run pretty much every territory out of business and needed yep. a place to cultivate talent. And where else better to do that than in Memphis, where most of his Memphis, stars, Tennessee. yeah, where most of his stars had come from to begin with. Yeah, well, you, you've got uh, you've got our plowboy Fur who who became Uncle Uncle Elmer, and uh, you know uh, uh, downtown Bruno uh, who became Harvey Whippleman, and there are just more and more stories. The Rock again came yeah. through here, Hulk Hogan. Uh, you're right, all all those big stars at one time in WWE, uh, virtually all of them uh, came through Memphis or at least worked in Memphis uh, for a little while, 
So yeah, we, we definitely were the, uh, talent feed. And you know, uh, another thing when, uh, uh, when USWA and, and all of that after the sale and, and all that mess came along in what, 1996, 97. Um, and then we were off the air for about a year. Uh, and, uh, Mason Granger, who was our general manager at the time, uh, very astute. He had, he had worked with the station for many years as our main news anchor and, and other, uh, uh, positions that he had at the station. And he said, I want wrestling back on the air. We need it back on the air. So that's when power pro wrestling was formed. And Randy Hales came back as the, uh, head of the, the power pro wrestling. And we, Got another, I think, four years out of it uh, that was pretty good wrestling. But that's a long way of saying that that was strictly a WWE development uh, league. Um, there was an agreement that uh, that Power Pro Wrestling would take uh, people like uh, Kurt Angle, who mm. was young and inexperienced. So they, they put him in Power Pro in Memphis uh, to teach him the ropes, to build him up, to, to teach him how to talk and and all of those things and brought him back and he comes back and is a superstar. So that's, that's what power pro was. It was strictly a WWE developmental league. Now we did of course, fill in with some, some wrestlers uh, around the territory and, and locally, but uh, that was the primary purpose of it. You know, you mentioned channel 24 earlier. Uh, that was the first time that I'd ever seen the Batman show in syndication. And I was absolutely blown away. Uh, but another show debuted, on Saturday morning on Channel 24, and that was ICW, <laughs> the band of outlaws yep. led by Randy Macho Man yep. Savage. Uh, and yep. Lance told me this great story about how he was convinced that Lance had gotten them booted off TV in Lexington. And when you guys, yep. I believe you, you guys showed up in a limo for a big card at Rupp Arena, and Randy it was, was Lance's waiting. van. Oh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was Lance's van. Yeah, I, of course, I didn't get to do the, much of the territory because they were fairly long trips, Louisville, Lexington, Evansville, around like that, because I had to do the, the weather uh, on five. And uh, I was on vacation or something, and, and we had a card in, in uh, Lexington, Rub Arena. So uh, Lance said, you want to go? I said, sure. So Margaret, my wife, and I uh, went with Audrey and Lance, and we rode in his van. He, it, these were in the days of CB radio. And, uh, so his, his, uh, handle was Kansas city star. Uh, and he was, a, it was KC for Kansas city and the sunshine band. And <laughs> that's what we were riding <laughs> up the highway. And we, we get to Lexington and, uh, we're, we're going to park and all of that. And here comes Randy Savage. And I think his brother, I don't know who always with him come running up, hey, Lance, you stole our TV. You stole our TV, Lance. You got us kicked off TV, which I don't know what happened, but I know that we did get on TV in Lexington. And, uh, anyway, uh, Randy was convinced that Lance was personally responsible for getting them kicked off of television. So fortunately security at Rupp arena at the time was off duty police officers. They mm -hmm. saw what was going on and they said, Lance, come on in. So they actually took us in and we parked inside Rupp arena, uh, so that, uh, uh, we savage and those guys couldn't get to us. And that's when I found out that of, of all the guys in, involved in wrestling uh, for us uh, in the dressing room that night, I found out that Lance and I were the only two that weren't packing heat. <laughs> Everybody else was ready if, if they had to. Fortunately, wow. we had no incident uh, after that. That was the only uh, incident. And, of course, 
Randy later came to work for us, uh, became a superstar uh, in his own right and on the national scene. But, uh, yeah, it turned out to be a, a really good friend uh, in, in uh, the years ahead. Yeah, I believe Lance said he started using Sonny King as an escort to his car after that because he didn't mess with Sonny King. Yeah, mm. yeah. no, no, nobody messed with Sonny King. You know, Sonny King ended up, uh, he was a tough guy and confronted someone. I don't think it had anything to do with wrestling, but uh, he ended up getting shot and, and he, he was seriously injured. And, uh, he, he, he didn't, he didn't take any guff off of anybody. You, you, you cross him and you had something to deal with. Yeah. But yeah, I believe he was stabbed outside an arena nearly bled to maybe, death. And maybe that was it. Yeah, and then I, I guess maybe two years later, he's back in Memphis and probably cuts the best promo that he's ever done in his life uh, about how he was clinging to life and about how he told his son that he was going to make a comeback and become a champion. And that set up a match with Thea Lawler. And it was just, I, I still, that, that, that promo just gives me goosebumps uh, just, just, just thinking about it. Yep, he was... Uh... He, he was he was great on television too. He could cut a great promo. I, I always liked Sonny King. Uh, he, I didn't I didn't have a lot of uh, interaction with him outside uh, the wrestling area, but he uh, he was one of the guys I always liked. And another guy who I think uh, was a great you know I'm just curious who you know could you get your impressions on on who was a really strong promo and a guy that cut the right kind of promo, the kind that would actually draw money. And I think Dutch Mantel is highly underrated in that area. I agree. Yeah. Dutch, Dutch again could come out and he could cut the promo uh, tailored to what was, to, to what the program was at the time. And, uh, of course he had the, had the stock stuff. He came out, he was from Texas. He came in the, he was a, he came out in a black hat with a big old mustache. And, uh, he came out with that, that whip called that bull whip called shoe baby. <laughs> and, uh, he, he, he was, he, he cut a great promo. One thing that, that Dutch uh, was also very good at, like like several of the other guys, he would he would cut to the chase. He wouldn't stand out there and, and do you know go take didos as my mom used to say up and down and all around the subject. He would get right to the point and uh, sell it and and go on. And I agree, he he was underrated as uh, someone who cut a great program. And one of the few who was kind of a tweener in, in the Memphis territory, because usually the heel, it was pretty much black and white. It was a heel and, and it, was a, it was a baby face, whereas Dutch could get away with uh, attacking Lawler, sucker punching him. Um, and I think, but I think the fans respected him for that. It was almost like the, a template for what would become uh, the Steve Austin character. And WWE, where he did respect yeah. authority, didn't trust anybody, and I think you know, and, and the the crowd. I remember going to the Mid South Coliseum for one of their bouts in spring of '82, and about forty percent of the fans were cheering for Dutch, which just stunned me because I was a big King fan. Yeah, yeah, it it uh, it, it was amazing. I I, I kind of to carry the the Western thing even a little bit further. Uh, to me, Dutch was kind of like the guy that came into a town in the wild west yeah. and you know, he wasn't necessarily the most upstanding citizen, but he certainly wasn't the worst that came in, but he realized things were wrong going on. And it, it was kind of, it kind of like that attitude that, okay, uh, if the sheriff ain't going to handle this, I will. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, think, I, I think that's kind of what the fans uh, got into. Yeah. Almost like the high plains drifter, uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Right riding into town, uh, taking matters into his own hands. Yeah, that's that's actually a, a good way of putting that. Uh, who are some of your other uh, favorites to, to interview over the years? 
But I, I, mean, I know, oh. I, I know, I know, I'm not on the list. Oh yeah, well, you you would have been one of my favorite interviews. I I, I told you this last time we had lunch. Uh, let me just tell the fans this this guy <laughs> was was great. He was enthusiastic. He was young, good looking kid, and he could cut a promo. Had a great mouth on him. The only problem is every time Scott came out for an interview, well, not every time, but there were a few times he came out, uh, I was scared to death. Keep in mind, I was an employee of the wrestling company secondarily. I was an employee of the television station. I was the representative of the television station there on Saturdays. So it was up to me to make sure that nobody did or said anything that cost us the license. And in, in those days, different than it is now, yeah. but, uh, there was one interview in particular, you kept throwing out the same word. You didn't really understand <laughs> the impact of it at the time. Uh, but it was a word that could not be used on television or should not be used on television. And I kept trying to cut you off and you kept throwing the word out there right. and, uh, <laughs> you were getting over, but we, finally, I think we ended up cutting the interview and throwing you out of the studio. But, uh, in, anyway, uh, that, that's, that's the only time really that I recall that, uh, uh, that we had a great problem. Uh, you, you did some great things, uh, that, that I absolutely loved, uh, playing on the name Bowden. You, you came out wearing a Florida state university <laughs> Jersey and a Florida state helmet, uh, and claimed you were. You were uh, the nephew of uh, the great Bobby Bowden, the football coach, the, the Hall of Fame football coach there. And you go, oh, you're not. Yeah, well, yeah, Uncle Bobby's did this and that and the other. But that sort of thing, it was great stuff. Uh, primarily was that one interview that, uh, that I didn't like. And, and as a result of that, unfortunately, unfairly, uh, in hindsight, uh, I never quite trusted what you might say, uh, that you wouldn't throw a word out there that, that my boss would call me Monday and say, look, we're not having that anymore. You understand? Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and as a, as a kid, you know, I didn't, I didn't quite understand that. Uh, I thought I was supposed right. to be cutting edge. And, and when I said that word and, and you got bad with me, I, I, I thought we were dancing. You know, I thought we were, you were playing along with us, yeah, but, uh, you know, and, and now, now that's, that's one difference. There are a lot of things we could not say on television back in those days that they say on television in prime time now. Uh, but that, that particular word, uh, if, if either one of us said that on uh, a major television show now, local television show now, it'd probably be the last time we were ever on television. Uh, because, uh, as, as you know, certain words you, you just cannot, cannot use. Uh, and that's, that's one of them in the, in this climate that we have today. But, uh, anyway, that's all water under the bridge. We're friends. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. And, uh, I, I remember I even kind of, I think, I think we made up briefly after that. I, I called you at the we station did. and then apologized. And then two weeks later I do it again. I say something else really stupid and I can hear you on the, on the mic saying, uh, I just want to apologize for some of the words Mr. Bowden said. I'm going to uh, be having a few words of my own with Mr. Bowden after the show. Yes. <laughs> and I, yes. I remember, as, I remember thinking, fact, oh I, no. <laughs> I just saw that. I, I guess it was you that posted it. It was you yeah, it, uh, that, that posted that in the last couple of days. Uh, there, there was about a 30-minute segment of excerpts of stuff uh, that I had done. No, it wasn't. You posted something, and I saw a link to it on, on YouTube. Okay. But uh, anyway, yeah, I saw that particular part of uh, of the show that day. It was, uh, as I recall, I was doing the show by myself that particular yeah. day. But uh, anyway, we, yeah. uh, we got everything going. Yeah. 
Yep, yep, and it was a pleasure having uh, having lunch with you recently. I, I was in Memphis. Uh, that, that's how I spent my my tenth wedding anniversary. <laughs> and if you had told me years ago that I would be <laughs> spending my tenth uh, wedding anniversary with uh, with Dave Brown, I never would have believed it. But uh, but there well, we were. You know, yeah, your tenth anniversary. We're having lunch. Uh, you and I, and Mark James, uh, great great author, has come up with a lot of uh, Memphis wrestling books or wrestling books in general, and uh, we're having lunch. And I'm thinking when I'm when we're meeting for lunch, he he posted this as his tenth anniversary, uh, and he's having lunch with us. So I asked about that. It turns out your wife was out of the country at the time, and I said, "Well, it's probably a good thing <laughs> we wouldn't be having lunch with you." No, no, not at all. Uh, and you know what? I should have heeded your advice. Of course, I asked you about the weather for the Liberty Bowl, and you explained to me that uh, well, it's going to start off, uh, you know, like like a like a crisp fall morning. It's going to be pleasant the first second quarter, but as the as the game goes on, it's going to be freezing. And you are absolutely yep. right. I wanted to leave so badly. <laughs> I know. Well, I I, uh, I did not get tickets for the game uh, for a couple of reasons. But uh, uh, I was glad I did not have tickets by the time it got to be fourth quarter because it was, it was very cold out there. I did talk to a lot of people that wasn't as bad as it could have been because it was a sellout crowd. It was a hard sellout. Yeah. And uh, so the fact that there was so much humanity around uh, kind of shielded everyone from uh, some of the cold. But uh, still, it was it was a cold day at the Liberty Bowl. Yeah, and it, it kind of warmed my heart, too, to see a packed stadium and the Memphis yep. Tigers on the field. You know, the, the running joke for years in Memphis that if, uh, you know, if the Tigers wanted to draw that kind of crowd at, at the Liberty Bowl, they would have to have wrestling matches at halftime. Uh, but yeah. uh, that was not the case. Uh, they were there to see the, the yep. Tigers play in the Liberty Bowl. Yeah, the, the, the University of Memphis has become a major player in college football, and, and I give great credit of that to the current president of the university and, and athletic director, Dr. David Rudd and, and Tom Bowen. Uh, they they understand the importance. You know, people you know often say, well, we ought, shouldn't be wasting all that money on football. We ought to be educating students. But they understand that to build a university and to build the reputation of the university as a great research uh, university as it is, that you must have a strong football program because that's the way to get national recognition. And if people think of your football program as being great, then when you say, hey, we've also got one of the great uh, scientific research and scientific development uh, schools anywhere in the country, they go, oh, okay, I'll take a look at that. So I think they understand that. Uh, yeah, and you and I both attended Memphis State University. I, I, I was actually yep. my senior year when I became a heel, which was very interesting because I was – I was using my real name and talking about my rich daddy. And my father was a firefighter, a lieutenant with the Memphis Fire <laughs> Department. So you can imagine they were unmerciful. He would get phone calls from all the other firefighters <laughs> saying, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah where's, this <laughs> big house in, where's this big house in Germantown you're supposed to be living in? Oh, yeah, God. can I have a loan? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, um, gosh, Dave. Um, you know, I, we, we kind of glossed over really quickly about uh, about Nick Goulas and the switch to to Jarrett. Was there any hesitation at all back in 77 when Jarrett got ripped off by Goulas and was talking to Lawler and you and Lance about coming over to Channel 5 with him? Yeah, uh, it, it was. It, it was a, a, uh, a very difficult time for me. I, I wouldn't say it was unpleasant. It worked out very, very well, but it was a scary time for me. Uh, and for the for the entire operation, 
um, because uh, when when Nick did what he did to uh, to Jerry, Jerry said, you know, most people would have said, oh, okay, well, nothing I can do about it, and uh, just lost all that money. But Jerry bowed up, and he said no. And keep in mind that uh, Jerry's mother worked for Nick Goulas and had for many many years, so she knew uh, she knew where where everything was buried, so to speak, right, uh, right. as as far as the company is concerned. So Jerry uh, called a meeting of the guys, and he said, look, here's the deal. He's uh, let's form our own company. I've been running Memphis. We've been being successful that virtually no input into Memphis and, uh, we can make this successful, but I've got to have you guys with you. Will you come with me? And all but two of the big names, um, came, came with it. They agreed to come with it. So they well, that's, said, uh, oh, far, 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 Fargo and Tojo, right? Yeah, Tojo Yamamoto and Jackie Fargo. And I still yeah. don't know the full extent of that story. You and I have talked a little bit about that. But yeah. uh, uh, anyway, loyalty, I think, uh, to to what had been good to them for several years came into it. Sure. But um, it, it then there came the problem with the television because they said, well, we've got to have TV. So they went to Lance and said, will you go with us? We've got all the talent. So Lance went to the bosses and said, look, here's what we got to do said, we've got to disassociate from the Goulas operation. He's not going to have anybody, uh, really that's going to, going to draw a television audience. Jarrett's going to have everybody. So we need to need to get out of the deal with Goulas and sign a deal with, with Jarrett. So they decided, yeah, that's what they needed to, to do. So they, we were owned by RKO general broadcasting based in New York. Well, when New York got wind of it, when the lawyers in New York heard about that, they said, absolutely not. Uh, you will, you will get us sued and you, we will lose, uh, for breach of contract. We, we're, you cannot do that. And Lance said, well, what do we do? Because we're going to be left with a wrestling show that won't, won't draw any audience. They said, cancel it immediately. So that's what we did. We canceled the show. Well, meanwhile, uh, Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler had gone over to WMC channel five, uh, which was the powerful television station in town. Now at the time of news channel 13, we were, we were number one, but channel five was always the big television station. They were the first one in the state of Tennessee. So they, they went up to Maury Griner, not really thinking they were going to get too much of a hearing, but Maury looked at him and he said, well, and he looked at the radio and he said, well, and <laughs> Jerry Jarrett said to Maury Griner, he said, look, he said, I guarantee you, he said, we can get Lance Russell to come over here and, uh, we're going to hire him away from channel 13. So we'll have Lance Russell to do the show. And he said, I'm sure we can get Dave Brown. Uh, you, you need a weatherman and, uh, he's the number one weatherman in town. He said, we can get Dave and Lance over here, which was interesting because they never asked me anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) So I had no clue that they were telling Maury that. So anyway, as things developed, uh, then, uh, channel five did pick up the show. Uh, they started it in March. And, uh, Lance, uh, was again, program manager at uh, channel 13 at WHBQ. So it was, I think a, a couple of weeks before he could come over, they started with a couple of other guys yeah. uh, hosting the show. And then Lance came over late March, early April. And then they started talking to me about coming over. We went back and forth on this and that got together on a contract compensation. And so I regretfully had to regretfully had to turn in my, uh, resignation at channel 13, which was kind of like family. I mean, I'd grown up there. I, I went to work at uh, WHBQ when I was 17 years old. 
and uh, it, it, it was like leaving family. And you're going to the great unknown of the major league, WMC. So I did it. Uh, fortunately, I did. Never looked back. Never needed to. And it worked out just absolutely wonderfully for me. And uh, it, of course, worked out great for the wrestling show. I do think having Lance and Dave back together um, did help. Yeah. And adding and building the audience. I, I really do. Yeah, it's, I, I've, often, I've often described it as, uh, you know, a couple of neighbors that you really like who drop by every Saturday morning, maybe for coffee and a piece of pie, and we watch wrestling, we watch wrestling together. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and that's, that's, that's basically the way we approached it, yes. In the early days, now, of course, by the time we got to Channel 5, it was totally different, but uh, in the early days, when I first started doing the wrestling show, I would not sit in on the meeting before the broadcast. Uh, because I wanted to react to it as someone sitting at home watching would react to it, uh, not having any clue of what uh, what might transpire during the show that day. Uh, later on, it, it became imperative that, that I be part of the of the uh, pre production meeting. But uh, it uh, that that's the way we approached it as just a couple of guys uh, telling you what we're seeing. And I think one one thing that was great about the Memphis Wrestling Show, at least when I was, you know, became a part of it, uh, and I, I talked to Dutch Mantel years later, and he said, well, it was pretty much like that in the 80s, too, where, you know, you had the basic format laid out, but it would constantly sort of change, you know, like maybe on the fly, Lawler would say, go out there and uh, say this and, or, you know, go out there and make the same. And so you never really truly knew exactly what was going to happen, which gave the show that kind of sense of danger. Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, it, it, it did kind of keep us, uh, you know, having to react to something that we had no clue was going to happen. I, I think that happened a, a lot. It would happen with Jerry Lawler. Jerry, Jerry is very much when he was booking the show, when he, when as he picked up the pencil, we used to say, uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a lot more fly by the seat of your pants than it was when, uh, when Jerry Jarrett did it, Jerry had it all very well meticulously laid out. Uh, but still, he would be in the back. He would see something. He would hear something. And that great mind of his, he would think of something. So he he would he would send somebody out to say or do something uh, to carry it in uh, the proper direction or even a different direction than what he had originally thought. Uh, and you're right. I think that's part of the spontaneity of the show that uh, that helped build it. Yeah, yeah, and I remember being in, involved in a, in a few of those uh, pre-production meetings, and it was just fascinating to watch. You know, to to have Jerry Lawler and Lance Russell and Dave Brown, uh, you know, kick 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 get around these different ideas, and uh, and I think Eddie Gilbert was was a part of that, and Eddie had a heel and turning me heel, and uh, for for a guy who grew up watching the show and had been a fan since 1977, it was a very special time in my life, and uh, I'm, I'm just grateful that uh, that you guys let me be a part of it. Well, we're, we were glad to have you there. Other than that one interview, we were thrilled. To have you there. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, uh, uh, you know, one thing uh, that, that I have told people over the years that's amazing about the Memphis show, uh, we would come in there essentially one hour before we were to go on the air. And uh, Jerry Jarrett in particular would lay out everything that was going to happen minute by minute. And that was it. Uh, that that was all the, the pre planning that we did, uh, we would find out and the guys would find out what was going to happen on that show in that hour before the show. And then we would leave, we would go out and we would do the show live. Mm -hmm. Uh, we would do the show live and it came off almost flawlessly virtually every week, just the way that 
it was intended to come off. And I've told people, had we been making a movie, uh, to do the same thing would have taken us six months at least and uh, would have had to have been heavily edited and things reshot and all of that sort of thing. So it's it's pretty amazing that we were able to put on television, which, uh, frankly, looking back at some of the shows that we did, especially in the 80s, was really pretty good television oh in my general, not just, not just good wrestling. It was good television. And for that to happen in that way uh, is somewhat amazing to me to this very day. Well, I think it's a credit to the to the two stars of the promotion, really, Lance Russell and Dave Brown. You know, because you guys had well, the most you guys had the most airtime. You kept the thing flowing and and it did. It the show came off just so seamlessly. Uh you guys made it look easy. Well, thank you. I, I that that was our goal and, and I, of course I give most of the credit to Lance as as my my teacher, my mentor, and, and the guy really who was responsible for my entire television career. And uh, he, he was just a master at it, but he never acted like it. Uh, you know, there was, there was no, no ego that I'm Lance Russell, da-da-da-da-da, none of that. Uh, he was just Lance. Yeah. And uh, I can't, can't say enough good about Lance Russell. Oh, I know. I, I, uh, Lance was obviously very near and dear to my heart. Uh, you know, I, I cried the morning that I you know, received the news. Um, and a lot of my friends who weren't even a part of the business, uh, they called me to see if I was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, cause, cause yeah. it really, just, it, to me, it felt like a family member had, 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 had passed away. That, that's, yeah. how, that's how special he was. And that was the, and I think a lot of, you know, it wasn't just guys like me who actually lived their dream and, and, and grew up watching and actually got to work with you guys, but people just felt a connect. They felt like they knew you, I think, uh, just because yeah. they, they yeah, watched the show. Well, people, people would tell us that, you know, I, I feel like I know you, I know you, you don't know me, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you're, you're in my home every night at 10 o'clock or you're in my home every Saturday morning. And I always took that as, as perhaps uh, an ultimate comment, uh, I, I mean, an ultimate compliment, uh, that people felt that comfortable allowing us into their homes on that regular basis. And, and I, I, I really appreciated that comment, still do to this day. Yep, yep. And of course, you know, you and I also talked about there was also a huge section of fans that they never liked to admit that they watched it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I can't tell you, especially in the, in the 70s and, and uh, 80s, early 80s. Uh, you, you would go somewhere. I tell people you'd, you'd go into the branch bank. Remember when you went into, into banks instead sure. of doing it online? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, you would go into the bank and the vice president there would say, you know, I never watched that stuff, but, uh, uh, last Saturday kids just happened to have that wrestling show. <laughs> and then they would, they would tell you everything that had happened word for word for the last three weeks. So you knew that they were, they were closet wrestling fans and, uh, everybody was watching that. It, it was a social phenomenon. Yeah, so, so somebody was watching that show. They all, everybody yep. claimed not to be watching. It was almost like if you admitted that you watched it, that that meant that you believed that it was real or something. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. even even my English professor, my senior year at the University of Memphis, uh, was saying, you know, she goes, "Oh, uh, that on uh, TV," uh, uh, and then she caught, she you know kind of caught herself and calmed herself down. You know, my kids were so excited when you came out and then we're doing all that. And I mentioned that you were one of my students. Um, I don't really watch it, but uh, what are the moon dogs really like? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. It was hilarious. And, and people used to ask me again, this was the days of kayfabe and uh, people would ask me, say, I can come here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah you can tell me, is that wrestling stuff really real? And I, 
I had a stock answer. I said, well, let me tell you this. It's real to me. I am there every Saturday morning. We do that program live every Saturday morning. When we got off the air on Saturday morning, they had me an envelope with a check in it. On Monday, I take that check to the bank and deposit it. And I have never had the bank call me on Tuesday and say that check is no good. So wrestling is very real to me. Yes, yes, very much so. And uh, I think a big part of uh, not only my childhood, but so many people who grew up in Memphis, it was an institution. Uh, yep. And just made uh, Saturday mornings very, very special. Uh, Dave, did, did you ever... And it, and it did, it did become something that where people, instead of being afraid to admit they watched it, they bragged that they watched it every yeah. Saturday. So it yeah. transformed into that, which was great. Yeah. Did, did you ever dream, growing up in, in Trenton, Tennessee, uh, I believe you had a dream of being a disc jockey, did you ever dream that your life would turn out this way, uh, that you would be just as well known as uh, being a weatherman uh, on the number one uh, newscast in, in the city, uh, but also known as one half of the greatest wrestling announced duo, in my opinion, of all time. No, I never, never had a clue. Uh, <laughs> matter of fact, my, my father had, uh, had a bright brain tumor. He died when I was 10 years old. So when I was a kid, uh, he was on medication. So we, we made frequent trips to the pharmacy uh, to pick up his, his meds. And I decided I was going to become a pharmacist. And I was going to be a pharmacist. Matter of my, I had an after-school job at uh, the local drugstore. And that, that was my career path until uh, one day I saw a guy who, who was an acquaintance who was older than I uh, playing records at a remote broadcast on a, on a local radio station. So I went to him. I said, hey, how do you get on radio? I thought, hey, this guy's playing records and getting paid for it. I play records at home. Don't get paid a nickel. So um, I fell in love with radio, rock and roll music, and uh, uh, was able to start my radio DJ career at age 15 as a sophomore in high school. And the path, I, I just kind of went with a flow after that. And I was very fortunate that doors opened the way they did. And I was uh, in a position to take advantage of that. And uh, so, no, I, I, I never would never would have dreamed uh, anything like the career I had. I've had a marvelous career, still going on a little bit. And, uh, as, as we get into the final years of it, wrestling is a huge part. When I put some, when I put out a tweet on Twitter, um, I can put out something about the weather and I'll get reaction to it. Uh, but I can put out something about wrestling and my, my notifications explode of people who are liking it or reacting to it or retweeting it. So, uh, that tells you how big this wrestling business has become. Yeah. And I think, I think it's tremendous that especially Lance in, in his later years, when he started attending the conventions, uh, the three of us attended one at the, the Charlotte fan fest, uh, I believe in 2009, and we did the, the Memphis wrestling round table and we had yep. fans from, from that was all fun. Yeah, that was such a blast, and uh, we had. Fa it, it, it was just amazing to see you guys get that kind of recognition from fans from not from all over the country, and we had even some from you know uh, we traveled from I believe England. Uh, we had a few from Japan come, and they all knew about Memphis wrestling, which was amazing to to see. Yeah, that that really blew me away. Uh, that that uh, day in Charlotte. Yeah, you you hosted that uh, the Memphis Roundtable, and that was great fun. Lance and I were there. Jerry Jarrett was there, and uh, some other folks were around that uh, had had worked with us. Uh, but that's when it really uh, hit home to me uh, that it, we were international, mm -hmm. and due to the tape swaps and due to YouTube. 
because you're exactly right. I had a, had a young man from England come up and he had a, had a t-shirt with my picture on it. (laughs) Where are you from again? And you know, I'm, I'm from halfway between Liverpool and wherever. And, uh, Germany, uh, I think there was one young man from Norway. Um, there were just people from all over and they were fans of Lance and Dave and, and, and Memphis wrestling. And, and I was humbled by it actually, uh, to think that, uh, that it it had gained that stature in the minds of so many people. Wow. Yeah. Um, and Dave, I know this is kind of a loaded question, but, uh, but, uh, you know, there are so many wonderful wrestling moments that, that, uh, that I constantly relive and talk about with my friends. And, but what was your personal favorite storyline or, or angle that, uh, that, that Jerry Jarrett developed from, from beginning to end and then that you saw come to fruition? Well, at, uh, there, there were so many of them, uh, but, uh, the one that, that still fascinates me to this day. And, uh, again, it, it's something that was quite controversial at the time. Jerry Jarrett certainly went along with it and, and approved it, but it was the, the Lawler and Andy Kaufman thing. Um, it, it, it was special for me, uh, watching it, uh, you know, and I, I didn't know at first if Andy Kaufman was, was crazy. Uh, if, if uh, I, di- I didn't know about Andy Kaufman, but it turned out, you know, he was the guy and, and, uh, it, it would amaze me that he was so good. He, he was, he, he was not a comedian. He said he was not a comedian. He was a performance artist. Yeah. And looking back, that's exactly what he was. You, you're looking at his Saturday night live things and all of that. He, he didn't come out and do one liners. He was a performance mm-hmm. artist and he was a master at it. Maybe the best ever. And he, he was so fascinated with wrestling and the fact that the bad guys could command the full attention of the audience. And he, he was fascinated by that. So that's how he got into this. And he wanted to do it in a, in a major way, uh, a real wrestling uh, program, if you will. And I think he first approached Vince and Vince would not mm. go along with it. Uh, but, uh, somebody told him you ought to check, check with Memphis. They'll do anything. And, he did. <laughs> and uh, he got with Lawler and Lawler bought right into it. And to see these guys carry that program off in such an incredible way. And they would, they would be at the mid South Coliseum in, in their, in their match on Monday night. And, uh, you know, hated each other, 11,000 people screaming there. And then I would get off the news at 10 o'clock or 1030 and I would walk in into the newsroom and they'd be sitting in an edit booth looking at what had happened that evening and, you know, figuring out how the program was going to go from there. So that, that to me was the single most memorable thing that, that happened. It was, uh, uh, it, it was amazing to watch and I, I gained great respect for Andy Kaufman and, uh, continued respect for Jerry Lawler because he was a key part of all that happening. And oh, then when they did the thing on the Letterman show, oh. uh, that's what sold it internationally. Yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't have worked anywhere else. Now, had nope. they been able to convince, I, I believe Vince Jr. was on board with it. He actually did an interview with Andy at Madison Square Garden. And Andy cuts this promo uh, on a woman challenging her to match. And you can tell that, that Vince is just loving it. Uh, Vince Jr. 
but I think it was Vince Senior who said, no way, no how. Yeah. But, if, but even yeah. if they had gone along with it, it would not have had the same impact as the Hollywood star coming to the South, coming to Memphis, yeah. especially with Jerry Lawler. I think Lawler was so instrumental and 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 helping pull this off. You're exactly right. On all counts there. It would not have worked in New York because, you know, Hollywood people and New York people interchange all the time back and forth between those cities. Uh, no, it, it was Memphis and it was Andy being able to play uh, the country rube thing <laughs> that uh, that sold the whole deal. And uh, it, it was just it was it was a masterful uh, piece of work. It really was. So many people who I, I've met out here in Los Angeles, I've lived out here for almost 20 years now, uh, when they when, when I meet them and we get to talking, they'll occasionally break into, hey, you want to wrestle me? You want to wrestle me Memphis style? Yeah, 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 that's a quote. <laughs> and it, it's amazing to think that the Batman segment and the Andy Kaufman segment are two to mainstream entertainment moments that still get played on television today. It's uh, crazy. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Now, locally, I guess I guess one that stands out in my mind is uh, is when uh, uh, Jerry Lawler is coming back. He's on crutches and he's doing a promo, and Handsome Jimmy comes out, takes a crutch, and breaks it over his head to set up the Lawler versus. Jimmy Valiant program that uh, that ensued. Uh, so that was that was uh, that was kind of a special moment locally too. That whole thing with with the music, you know, and singing on stage and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think he and I think he uh, busted a guitar over Lawler's head and uh, the whole deal. Yeah, there was a guitar and a crutch involved. Yeah, yeah both both, yeah. In, both involved in various weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lawler was. Uh, I think uh, the deal was that he was going to retire and pursue a music career, which. Uh, that that may have been a bit of a stretch, but <laughs> as far yeah. as believability goes. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, uh, but it created a new superstar in Handsome Jimmy, and uh, and, and man, he and Valiant do some great houses in '77 uh, or uh, actually 1978. Yeah, yeah, '78, I believe. Yeah. Uh, wow, I believe uh, the, there was a line in the commercial appeal that said, "While most of the city was watching the Orange Bowl." 10,000 fans showed up at the Mid-South Coliseum to see Jerry Lawler defeat Handsome Jimmy Valiant in the main event. And uh, I thought that that was really interesting. <laughs> most, most interesting. Interesting. And also, I think it was at the time, I think a lot of the guys at Commercial Appeal came to really respect what we were doing. But at the time, I think that was a little bit of a backhanded slap that, uh, you know, you people don't have sense enough to stay home and watch this football game on television. Instead, to watch Jerry Lawler and handsome Jimmy Valiant. Well, uh, you they know, probably got a better. They, but, the, but the wrestling fans probably got a better show. <sighs> oh, oh, there's no doubt, no <laughs> doubt about it. Yeah, it, uh, it it was a special night, and of course, you know, on those uh, on those holiday nights, holiday nights were some of the biggest uh, nights for an audience. Uh, so you know, like even on Thanksgiving night, uh, after people had the turkey and dressing and all that, Thanksgiving night was a prime night to have. Mid-South Coliseum book because you always usually did a pretty good house. Yeah, and I think that's a testament too. The the, the show had something for, for for everybody. You know, the the it was something the entire family could watch. Yep, that's exactly right. Whether they admitted it or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, Dave, uh, I have to say this has been a pleasure. Uh, I feel like we could do this all day, uh, but uh, hopefully you'll come back and, and visit with us again sometime soon. 
love to do it. Enjoyed having lunch with you over the holidays, and uh, let's don't make it quite so long next time, okay? That sounds that sounds good to me. Uh, and next time, I'll, I'll buy. I'll buy the burger. So. <laughs> okay, you're on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Scott. All right, Dave. Take care. Wow, Brian. Uh, I have to say that that was uh, a real pleasure walking down memory lane with a gentleman who for years was welcomed into my home along with Lance Russell on Saturday mornings to watch Memphis wrestling with me like a couple of trusted neighbors, like a couple of friends. Very special time. Years later, uh, I lived my dream, which may have at times been a nightmare for Dave, uh, cutting promos alongside this iconic announcer on Saturday mornings. Uh, and tonight, it was yet another realization of a dream to interview him for once and gain his insight into what made Memphis Wrestling the worldwide phenomenon it is today. It's uh, it's really amazing to see it grow from this local wrestling show that nobody ever thought would want to see again. You know, that's why they didn't keep the master tapes uh, in pristine condition and taped over a lot of shows. In closing, I am grateful that, uh, that Dave has forgiven me for all my blissed ignorance of youth. And I'm proud today to call him my friend. That's what it felt like to me. And I'm sure that's what it felt like to a lot of the listeners. It was like listening to two old friends reminiscing and talking wrestling, uh, much like the chemistry that made Dave Brown and Lance Russell such a joy to listen to over the years. Wow, that is a uh, that is a huge compliment, Brian. Thank you for that. Hey, just a reminder that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden or on Facebook at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N. And be sure to check out my YouTube channel, Kentucky Fried Wrestling, for all kinds of great videos, including some of the memorable promos that Dave Brown sometimes wishes he could forget. <laughs> They're all on my YouTube channel, uh, at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling. <laughs>